Let me remind you of the passage that this uh, series is based on in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. You can grab your Bibles and turn to them uh, if you would like. I'm going to read just the first few verses of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus again. And if you're visiting with us today or just tuning in for the first time, uh, we are currently doing a series called Threads of Scandalous Grace, where we are tracing the threads that are found in Matthew's genealogy, the history of how um, Jesus came to be, at least in, in the way that we understand his birth, at a human perspective. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says this, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now remember, we've, we've looked at Tamar's story. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, as we look to the story of Rahab, as we think about what you do in the lives of people, whether it's in the past or today, Lord, will you give us ears to hear what you are saying and a heart to receive and obey? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of my favourite dead guys, um, Charles Spurgeon, said this, God has a people where we little dream of it. And he has chosen ones among a sort of people whom we dare not hope for. Who would think that grace could grow in the heart of one who was a harlot by name, as though her sin was openly known to all. Yet it grew there like a fair flower blooming upon a dunghill, or a bright star glittering on the brow of night. There her faith grew and brought forth glory to God. Right? This is the story of Rahab. And though if you read her account, and she appears in numerous places in the Bible, or references to her, she is consistently named as Rahab the prostitute. I've called today's message, Rahab, more than a prostitute. Let's get a bit of backstory to fill in the gaps here. Um, last week we were talking about the lead-up and we were talking about how uh, Tamar's story is woven into the story of Jesus. And we discovered that um, all of this was happening. Remember, there was a, an, an interruption to the story, the famous story of Joseph. Uh, remember the story of Joseph? Uh, Joseph, the annoying brother. 
Joseph, the one that all the older brothers said, let's, that was pretty serious, they said, let's kill him. And then there was some um, move of conscience amongst a couple of the brothers to say, no, 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 that's too extreme. Let's throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. That would be far better. And that's what they did. Um, Tamar's story that's interrupted into that story at that point in time. And when Tamar's finished, and we finish back up in Genesis 39 again, we pick up the story of Joseph all over again as he's in Egypt now, uh, in prison, sold as a slave, eventually ends back up in prison again, falsely accused. Uh, God is faithful to him. He rises up out of prison, positioned into a, a role of great influence in the nation, saves the nation of Egypt from famine and destruction, and in doing so, is reunited with his brothers and his family and saves them also. That's an incredible story, isn't it? Well, what we do know in the story of the Bible is that Joseph's family... Israel, his dad, and all of his brothers end up living in Egypt. And the king of Egypt was very kind to them. And then eventually we hear that eventually that king passed away and a new king rose up and he did not know the family, he did not love that family and their offspring, and he enslaved what would become the nation of Israel. And they were enslaved for four hundred years. Four hundred years. Slaves in Egypt, against their will, calling out to God, saying, God save us. And eventually he did. Eventually he sent a man named Moses, right? So we've moved from the nation of Israel to Egypt. The key player there was Joseph. And then after 400 years, the family, now numbering in the hundreds of thousands, their offspring have grown over 400 years. And they move eventually from Egypt back to the promised land that God had called them. The key player there is Moses, of course. Their um, human redeemer, but it was God who rescues them out of Egypt. And they, they got to the promised land pretty quickly, just in a matter of a couple of weeks. And they arrived on the borders of the promised land and God said, enter it, it's yours. And they said, no way, it's too scary. There are giants there and people there and, and who are we? And, and they wouldn't trust God and God said, well, until you learn to trust me, you can wander in the desert. That happened for 40 years Eventually, that entire generation that didn't trust God had passed away. And they stand once again on the borders of the promised land. Moses has died. There is a now a new leader over the people of Israel. His name is Joshua. The first big test of whether they would trust God or not comes as they stand on the banks of the Jordan River and across the river and just up the hill a little way is a city and the city is Jericho. It's a powerful city, a fortified city, a city with high walls all around it. Now that's the backstory as to where we've come from so far as we've sort of skipped through 
the genealogy that Matthew records of which father, and if you're reading the old version, begot which son. Turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, because I want to pick up a really key moment in this story and also the moment where we are introduced to Rahab. Joshua chapter 2 is where we're going to read from. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. We're going to read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left. And they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Before the men fell asleep, She went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. The men answered her, We will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterwards, go on your way. The men said to her, We will be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father mother, brothers, and all your family's, uh, father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his death will be his own fault, and we will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house shall be harmed, 
His death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we are free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied. And she sent them away. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So the two men went into the hill country, stayed there for three days until the pursuers had returned. They searched all the way, all along the way, but did not find them. And then the men returned, came down to the hill country, crossed the Jordan. They went to Joshua, son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. And they told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. I'd like to just finish off the last little bit of this story, but to do that, we're going to go to Joshua chapter 6 and read just a few verses, not the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 6, so skip forward a little bit, find verse 22. Joshua 6, verse 22. Now, in between chapter 2 and chapter 6, God was preparing the nation of Israel, the army, for what they were about to do. Those of you who remember the story of the conquest of Jericho, it was an incredible feat of military brilliance, right? Not really. They marched around the wall blowing trumpets. Anyone who's ever heard trumpets being blown for very long knows that eventually people just went, you win, we're leaving. God did an amazing miracle without them raising a sword, a shield or any armament of war. The, uh, the, the, the walls of Jericho crumble and the city and the people were given over to the Lord. Let's just pick up from verse 22 in chapter 6 though. Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her just as you swore to her. So the young men who had scouted went in, brought out Rahab, and her father, mothers, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the messengers Joshua had spent, sent to spy out on Jericho. And she still lives in Israel today. There's the, the main narrative, the main storyline of our introduction to Rahab. I want you to consider for a moment that of all the people in Jericho, of all the people in Jericho, who would suspect that Rahab the prostitute, would be the one who fears the Lord and keeps the Israelites safe. Right. This woman is so unassuming in this story and in one sense has nothing to gain from helping the spies. Yet she, out of all the people in the city, it's Rahab, who is the one to protect them and do so because she trusts in the Lord's strength. In fact, if you were to count up um, the amount of words, the amount of time it takes to us to read 
Rahab's speech to the two men on the rooftop. Remember when she went back up after the, the soldiers had been you know, sent on the wrong direction on the wild goose chase and she, she went back up as the evening fell and spoke to the two spies? And she gives a speech. It's actually the longest uninterrupted recorded speech of any woman in the Old Testament. God's recorded this, this response of her interaction with what God was doing. And she was observing it. She'd heard the stories. She wasn't a God-fearer before that. The, the, Jeric- the people who lived in Jericho had no sense of love or, or adherence to the, the God of Israel. And yet she had heard the stories. Appearances can be deceiving, can't they? So easy to make judgments and assumptions about a person's life and a person's value based on what we see. Based on the appearance of what their life is like. It can be easy for us to judge Rahab based on her profession. We often make snap decisions, snap judgments on others based on what they look like based on where they live, based on what they do for work. And yet, Rahab had immense faith in the Lord. In Joshua chapter 2, back in verse 11, if you want to back and flip back and have a look at it, the second part of that verse, she tells the spies of the fear that Jericho, the whole city has, and ends by saying this to them, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And perhaps, perhaps that is why I think scripture refers to Rahab throughout. As you read anywhere in the Bible that Rahab appears you get this reference to her as Rahab, the prostitute. Because I think it demonstrates that God can redeem anyone and anything. God can redeem anyone and anything for his purpose. I think it reminds us that he uses the most unlikely of us to bring about his plans. I think it reminds us also that faith and Rahab's heroism would also be woven into the lineage of Jesus. Who would have thought Rahab the prostitute becomes the great, 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 and so on, grandmother? Of Jesus. I think there are some, well, let's start with three lessons. I'm going to do three lessons that I think we can take out of this story as we consider it. Three lessons and then one big point. Can I do that? It sounds better if I've just got three, three lessons. Three lessons and one big point. Here's the first lesson. God weaves his story into Rahab's story. And he weaves Rahab's story into his, which shows us again God's great inclusive plan. We've seen this already in some of the stories that we've looked at already. 
Just as we looked at last week, right? When we covered Tamar's story. God delights in including the outcast and the abandoned. It doesn't just that he puts up with messy people. He doesn't just sort of tolerate the outcast. Oh yes, the outcast can come along too. It's not what God does. In fact, it's the other way around, it would seem. When James in the New Testament, writes a letter to the church. James gives us an insight into the way that God thinks because he said it's so different to the way that we think. So in church life, it's quite possible for us to view people the way that the, well, the rest of the world views people, the way that we're conditioned to view people in this culture, in this lifetime, which is flashy people, seemingly important people, should be the one that's honoured. Now in in um, the day of James, when he wrote, these seats down here, the front row, were the seats of honour. All right? Now they're the, the seats of the abandoned. All right? I don't know why even we bother putting this row out. That's right. If we don't put that one out, no one's going to sit in that row. All right? But in James's day, in the first century church, these seats were the seats of honour. If you're not close enough to be spat on by the preacher, you don't get the blessing, all right? Good work, brother. Um, James had a problem because what was happening in the first century church is that as people were walking through the door, those well-dressed, maybe with more expensive styling, jewellery, hair done, didn't stink, whatever the case may be, as they came in, the church was saying, well... Come down here to the seats of what? Honour. Come down here in the positions of prominence. And then, oh, some dirty, smelly person would come in that hadn't done their hair that day or they didn't look like they'd washed for a few days. They maybe hadn't eaten for a few days. And they came in and the church was starting to say, well, it's really nice for you. Welcome to church. Uh, We have saved you a wonderful seat at the back somewhere. We have it all back to front. We have it all back to front. God delights in taking the outcast and the abandoned, the forgotten, and he says, come down the front. You have the position of prominence here. The position of honour. And Rahab, the prostitute, the Bible keeps reminding us, this is the way everyone labels her. This is the way that she's seen. This is the label. This is the, the title above her head. Everywhere she would have walked, there's Rahab, the prostitute. But God weaves her story into his. Showing us again that he has an incredible, inclusive plan. God doesn't just tolerate the outcast and the abandoned. He delights in them. He delights in Rahab. He delights in you. God's redemptive love is seen most clearly as he steps into very unexpected places and gives good news to those on the margins of our society. And what Jesus said, I haven't come to heal the well. It's the sick who need this. 
Maybe you feel as though your story can't be redeemed. Maybe you're sitting there saying, Chris, but you don't know my story. You don't know the shame that I carry. You don't know the sin that still trails behind me. You don't know the labels. If only you knew, Chris. Maybe you feel as though your story can't be redeemed. Well, Rahab is here this morning to tell you otherwise, right? God delights in bringing in the outcast and the abandoned, the labelled, the pushed away. He did it in Rahab's life. He certainly did it in yours. Here's the second lesson from Rahab's story that I want you to think about. Faith can grow strong from the most unlikely places. Faith can grow strong from the most unlikely places. Who are the people we expect great faith from? Think about that. Who are the people that you think of when you think of great faith? Right? Is it those who had a good upbringing by godly parents? Maybe those who have had a, a good education or have a good job or own a nice house. Or maybe, maybe it's them. But I can assure you, faith grows in unlikely places. I love that when the writer to the Hebrews gives his great honour roll call of men and women of faith. Do you know that place in Hebrews? And it's called the faith chapter. And there's this big long list of these greats, the greats of faith. And um, we know from that chapter that those greats of faith, these men and women of faith, they form a great crowd of witnesses, the writer of the Hebrews says, right now. So right now, in heavenly places, there's an entire crowd of witnesses, men and women of faith, and they are watching on, cheering us on from the sidelines, as it were, as you walk your walk of faith. And they're saying, I've been there. I've done that. Keep going. Come on. They're the ones cheering you on right now. There's some amazing, amazing people who did incredible things. We might expect to see on that list super spiritual, insightful, godly, high-listed. What you might not expect to see on that list is a remarkable woman called Rahab. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. As the writer reminds us of this crowd of witnesses, these men and women of great faith who are cheering us on, standing, watching you and, and clapping you onto the finish line. Keep going, keep going. Amongst them, he says, verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute, welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Faith grows in unlikely places. Of all the people that the writer of the book of Hebrews could have called on to draw up an honour roll of men and women of faith, 
of all the people that he could have chosen from, of all the greats of the past. He looked down the list and he said, I want her on the list. Right? Rahab. Even Rahab the prostitute, still reminding us, listen, faith can grow from unlikely places. Here's the third thing to learn from Rahab's story. Real faith, real faith is active faith. Real faith is active faith. All right, so the writer to the Hebrews includes Rahab as an example of faith. But he's not the only person who does that. We've already talked about James and the way that he uh, goes about rebuking the church in the first century. His letters recorded for us. I'm assuming by that that we need just as much rebuke. He has a pretty punchy little letter. And he picks up the same theme of faith that the writer of the book of Hebrews does. And then he takes that lesson about faith and he leans on it a little bit more. And he wants to make a really important point. So I want you to hear from James for a moment as he selects two characters, just two. The writer of the book of Hebrews, man, he has a whole chapter full of characters about faith. He goes through and lists them all for us. James just selects two people from history to point out there is, that there is no such thing. Now, I want to say this really clearly for you this morning. James's point, the lesson that he's trying to make here is that there is no such thing as a private faith. No such thing as a private faith. So he selects two characters, and one of the characters doesn't surprise us at all, or it shouldn't. One of these characters does not surprise us. In fact, one of the characters is often referred to as the father of faith. But the other character? Of all the greats, of faith that James had to select from, he too looked down the list and he said, Abraham, no-brainer, he's on my list. The father of faith. Who will I come up with as my second person? Her. I want Rahab. James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you, and he's pointing his finger at the church, so I'm going to do the same. If one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But if you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, right, he's just made an analogy, a physical analogy that we can, we can associate with, right? Someone walks in, they're hungry, they're, they're threadbare, maybe they're almost naked, and you see them, and you say to them very sincerely, hey, listen, go in peace, my friend, and um, stay warm, and... Be well fed. James says, if you don't actually do anything about their need, you just speak to them those words, those words are useless. 
They, they don't have any effect on that person. And in fact, I would actually say it mocks them. So in the same way, faith... James wants us to learn a lesson about faith here and about that circumstance with the naked, hungry person that we've just said, bless you, on your way, go well. In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, James says, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you faith by my works, James says. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. James got a real way with words. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Now, here comes his two characters to drive the point home. First character, Abraham. Verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So let's just think about Abraham for a moment. James's point here. If you walk around just saying, yeah, I've got faith. I've got faith. I believe God. James has said, well, that's good, but it's not enough. Demons believe in God. Right. Fallen angels who rejected and rebelled against God's authority in their life, they believe in him, believe me. You read through the Gospels. Jesus meets with people who are possessed by demons all the time. What invariably happens, nearly almost every time, is the demon just starts going, uh, I know who you are, please go away. Don't send me, don't send me away, send me into the pigs, I'd rather that. Some demons will even profess exactly who Jesus is. We know you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, be quiet. They know who Jesus is. They believe in Jesus. Is that enough to save them? Just saying I believe something, James is making the point, isn't the same as saying that belief, that faith is going to change who I am. Abraham believed God and he obeyed. He followed up that mountain with his son. I'm sure in tears. I'm sure pleading, God, please Please do something here, but I will obey. I will obey. I will obey. Verse 25, in the same way, so now he's taking, James is taking Abraham's lesson, second character, in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute 
also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route. He's drawing on the story that we read from back in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab professed, remember, we've heard about your God. We know what he's done. And we are afraid. We know that your God is powerful. He is God on heaven and he's God on earth. But what did she do about it? She did something about it. That's what she did. She didn't just profess it. She didn't just go, well, I know that to be true. It's just, sort of my, it's just my private faith. You've got your faith and I've got my faith. It's just private. No. She did something. She hid the messengers. She put flax seeds on top of them. She sent the, the guards by another route. And she said, no, this is what God means to me. And this is what I'm going to do about it in my life. And now James is calling on this faith, this woman of great faith, not just because she believed something to be true, but her faith was active. It changed something about her life. She made different decisions. She walked different paths because of it. So he says in verse 26, James chapter 2, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right, so Abraham and Rahab are our teachers this morning. And James is delivering the lesson plan. And what is the point? James's point is that there's no such thing as a quiet faith. No such thing. No such thing as a private faith or an invisible faith. And, and maybe that's you this morning. Someone who says, well, of course I've got faith, Chris. Right? But it's personal. It's private. I don't need to go around making a big deal about it or changing anything too much in my life because of it. But I want to suggest to you that Rahab is also going to gently come down and sit beside you at your seat and she will say to you, I think very quietly and very lovingly, no, no you can't. Faith without action is no faith at all. Real faith is active faith. And while Rahab gently shares her wisdom, Abraham would be standing off to one side, I think, with a gleam in his eye as he recalls the struggle of having to walk up that mountain with his son and the joy that he experienced as God met him there and provided a substitute for his sacrifice. Meanwhile, James, who is as subtle as a brick, will simply say, faith without works is dead. Get over it. Move on. But what should we take? I would say that real faith, real faith can't help but to leak through the cracks in our life, right? It doesn't have to be a flashy faith might not be the sort of faith that people will write books about one day or the sort of faith that sees you walk on water or it doesn't have to be the, the type of faith that is, um, well, moving mountains. But it does have to be a faith that is real. It does have to be a faith that is alive. Real faith is active faith Real faith has a shape to your life. 
It looks like something. It makes a difference. It bends your choices. It alters your outlooks and your values. Real faith is an active faith. They're the three lessons that I think we take from Rahab's life. But I said that I've just got one big point that I want to leave you with at the end. And this is it. I would say that Rahab's story, it's a reminder of something from the past that had occurred and it's a signpost to something in the future that would occur. Rahab's story is a reminder of the Exodus story and it's a signpost to the Gospel story. Rahab, if you think about it, when we read through Joshua 2, Joshua 6, Rahab was rescued from destruction. And what was the the sign? What was the thing that the spies said? I'm going to make a, a pledge with you. As long as you, your father, your mother, all your family, as long as you stay in this house and put what sign up? Hang a scarlet cord, a crimson cord. Hang that from the window. And when we see that, when all the soldiers see that, Joshua will tell all the soldiers, when you see that, don't destroy that house. That reminds me of the Exodus story. The people of Israel enslaved in Egypt, calling out to God for a rescue. Moses is sent by God. The plagues start happening. The very last plague, you remember what that was? The angel of death would sweep through the land. Every household every firstborn son would be destroyed without exception if if the nation of israel was commanded take a lamb a spotless lamb your best lamb sacrifice it eat it together the blood from that lamb put it in a bowl take a small bushy branch a hyssop branch dip it in and paint the blood on your doorstep on the lintels, over your door. When the angel of the Lord sees that sign, it will pass over your house and you will be saved. Destruction will not be visited to your family. So we have the blood on the doorpost, the crimson cord at the window. When we see that, you'll be saved. But it points forward, doesn't it? We are saved from destruction as the scarlet blood of Jesus marks our heart. For all who have sinned, the wages of sin is what? Death, destruction. But the free gift of God is eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as the Israelites trusted in the blood over the doorway. Anyone in there under the blood is saved. Rahab and your family, stay in the house. Stay under the crimson cord. If you're there, you're saved. This morning, the big lesson I want you to take away from this is the blood of Christ over your life. Is that where your trust is? Are you hoping in the fact that you have a saviour, a redeemer, a spotless lamb of God who has died in your place? 
Run to Jesus for refuge this morning. Right? Find safety in his blood, in his sacrifice. He will not fail you. Maybe you think it's unfair that the Bible consistently refers to this remarkable woman as Rahab the prostitute. But I wonder if it isn't to be a consistent reminder that God can redeem any story. Any story. Right? Rahab, yes, she was a prostitute. But she was far more than that. She was far more than that. She was Rahab the redeemed. Rahab, a woman of faith. Rahab, a woman of active faith. And this morning, she is a woman who points us also to Jesus. Don't ignore the lessons of Rahab. Take hope. God can do something astounding in your life. An unlikely story you might bring, but faith grows beautifully there, C.H. Spurden said, like a flower growing on a dunghill. Take courage. God is not finished. Run to Jesus. You will find refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the story of Rahab, far more than a prostitute, a woman who shows us that you, you love, you delight to bring in the outcast, the abandoned, and include them, honour them. You wove her story as a thread of scandalous grace into the story of Jesus' lineage. Her faith grew in an incredibly unlikely place, a faith that was active, that shaped her life and you honoured her, you rescued her. And we thank you that her story points us to a greater story, the story of her offspring, the story of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, where we find refuge in your blood, Jesus. That you are our Passover lamb, the one who saves us from destruction, gives us the gift of life and hope. And so, Lord, we worship you this morning. But if there's anyone in this room, if there's anyone listening online who does not know that, Lord, will you place your arms around them and, and draw them to yourself and let them know you can redeem, you can rescue If that is you this morning, take this moment as we're about to go into the next song as we finish off. Will you take now to call out to Jesus? To find your refuge in his blood? A salvation in a name like no other? A God who can redeem your story and create faith in places that you think it couldn't grow? He can do it. I'm going to sit down the front here. If during this song you want to come down and talk to me about that further, I invite you to. If you prefer to talk to someone here that you already know well and it's brought you along to church or been in chatting with you and 
they would love to introduce you to their friend Jesus. But don't, don't walk out this door and let this opportunity go past.